What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, criminalization is an after the fact solution. There's no studies to show that prosecution decreases intimate partner violence. There's no research that shows that incarceration by itself decreases intimate partner violence. But we have uncritically accepted that narrative for such a long time. And it has not served us well in terms of actually getting at the root causes and trying to do the kind of preventative work that might actually make change. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. For those of you that have been listening to me for a while, you know that I'm a survivor of multiple partners that battered me. You also may know that I am a survivor of state intervention into that violence when my ex called the police after beating me um, pretty badly, but I was the one they took to jail. You may also know that I went to jail under the guise of something called the primary aggressor law, which meant that the cops got to determine who was the primary aggressor, uh, or as they would put it, who started it. I also went to jail under a mandatory arrest law. That means that Somebody has to go to jail, no matter the circumstances, if the cops show up. And you may also know that it was my mother, may she rest in peace, one of the foremothers of the movement to end domestic violence who had championed for and got those laws passed in the state of Nevada. At that time, our foremothers, majority feminists, most who considered themselves anti-racist, believed that cops, jails, and prisons were the answer. What is true? And what they were basing their interruption plans on was the fact that the only responses of law enforcement at that time were to laugh at the women, take the causer of harm for our walk around the block, literally, and leave. Women were literally being left to die. Almost 40 years later, and right now, in a time when incidents of intimate partner violence are at an all-time high, we should be clear the violence of the carceral state does not make people any less violent, does not solve the epidemic of gender-based violence, does not offer the healing necessary to the whole family, including the causer of harm, does Does not not make us any safer. The truth is, right now, with all of the interventions of the carceral state, every nine seconds in this country, a woman is beaten. Every year, nearly 5.3 million incidents of intimate partner violence occurs in the United States among women 18 years and older. Intimate partner violence results in nearly 1,300 deaths and 2 million injuries every single year. There's an epidemic of interpersonal gender-based violence in this country, and if we are ever going to end it, even reduce it a little, we've got to do something different. I'm very excited about our guest today who was having this conversation long before the current Alternatives to Police conversation was making national headlines. I imagine it was a lonely walk uh, for a bit. We are joined today by Lee Goodmark, a professor at the University of Maryland Francis King Carey Law School, where she co-directs the clinical law program and directs the gender violence clinic, which she founded. Professor Goodmark also teaches family law, social justice and the law, and gender-related courses. Goodmark is an internationally recognized authority on gender-based violence. Her legal work, scholarship, and commentary focus on aspects of gender-based violence, including race, intersectionality, criminalization, and incarceration. She's the author of an upcoming book, Imperfect Victims, Criminalized Survivors, and the Promise of Abolition Feminism. 
decriminalizing domestic violence, a balanced policy approach to intimate partner violence, which is what we're going to be talking about today, and a troubled marriage, domestic violence, and the legal system. Lee Goodmark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Kat. Lee, I want to start with a little bit about you. How did you come to focus uh, on gender-based violence, uh, IPV? Uh, I still call it domestic violence. That's how I came up. Um, But how did you get here? I came to this accidentally, actually. I went to law school thinking that I wanted to work with children. And it very quickly became apparent to me that children lived in families. And so my first job was to provide legal services to the families of kids at an elementary school in Washington, D.C. But what I saw pretty quickly was that no one was systematically providing legal representation to survivors of intimate partner violence in the D.C. courts. There were law clinics that were doing some of the work. There was an organization called Ayuda that was working with immigrant victims. But for the majority of people, and particularly for Black women in the district, there wasn't really anyone focused on their needs. So along with some folks who graduated about the same time that I do, we started to provide those services. And the more that I did it, the more that I wanted to do it. I've represented victims of violence now for the last 25 years, and it's the best work that anyone could imagine, um, as hard as it is and as frustrating as it can be. But truly, like a lot of things in my life, I kind of just backed into it. Before we we, we get uh, any further, can you just talk to my listeners about why and when we stopped calling it domestic violence and started calling it interpersonal violence? And I don't even use interpersonal violence. I use intimate partner violence. They're different phrases that describe different things. Domestic violence is more of a blanket phrase that can include elder abuse and child abuse and other forms of abuse within families. Um, Interpersonal violence I don't love as much because it's not specific about the relationship that's at issue. And I think Mm -hmm. that relationship counts for a lot. So the term that I use is intimate partner violence, but you'll hear people use all of them interchangeably. So I I spent the introduction talking about, you know, the foremothers and 40 years ago and and the work that really exploded to try to end intimate partner violence and protect uh, women primarily, though men also experience intimate partner violence. We'll talk about that a little bit uh, later. Um, as a result of, of that work in 1994, the Federal Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA, uh, came into play. Talk about uh, what that legislation was intended to do and also how VAWA contributed to the primary response to IPV being law enforcement. VAWA was really the end of about 20 years, as you said, of organizing among anti-violence feminists that started with the push for mandatory arrest laws, which require police to make an arrest anytime they have probable cause to believe that a crime of domestic violence has occurred. And that pushed for what's called no-drop prosecution, in which prosecutors pursued cases regardless of what the victim wanted, sometimes using some pretty invasive techniques to do so. All of that work had been done prior to 1994, And so in 1994, and actually in the years before 1994, then-Senator Joe Biden went to his staff and said, give me something on women for the crime bill. 
So you know that VAWA is part of 1994's omnibus crime bill, um, and that's not a mistake. What Biden was looking for was something that further entrenched the criminal legal response to intimate partner violence. And what his staff had been working on for a couple of years with anti-violence feminists was the Violence Against Women Act. VAWA entrenched that criminalization in a couple of different ways. More than anything, VAWA is a funding bill, and what VAWA funds is the criminal legal system. So VAWA's two largest grant programs, the STOP grant program and what used to be called the Grants to Encourage Arrests program, gave each year millions of dollars and hundreds of millions of dollars to the criminal legal system, to courts, to police, and to prosecutors to train and to upgrade their services and to do other kinds of work. It also gave money to community-based agencies, but only to the extent that those agencies were partnering with law enforcement to do the work of criminalization. And over the last 30 or so years, that the total monies given to the criminal legal system have come up to the billions of dollars. In addition to those two large grant programs, there are a number of smaller grant programs in VAWA that also give money to the criminal legal system. And then VAWA used the terms of its grant agreements to push criminalization as well. In the very first iteration of VAWA, states were required to have a mandatory arrest policy if they wanted to receive certain VAWA funds. VAWA has walked that back since 1994. You're now required to have either a mandatory arrest or what's called a preferred arrest policy. You don't have to make an arrest, but you should make an arrest in order to get grant funding. And all of the, not all of, most of the research done through VAWA is also about the criminal legal system. So even though it does other really important things, it funds civil legal services, it funds transitional housing, it funds supervised visitation, the core of what the Violence Against Women Act does is pay for the criminal legal system to intervene in cases of intimate partner violence, dating violence, stalking, and rape and sexual assault. You touched on this a little bit in your answer. Uh, So that was then Senator Joe Biden. Now President Joe Biden uh, has reauthorized VAWA. What stayed the same? Did anything get better? Anything get worse? I guess whether things got better or worse depends upon where you stand on these issues, because Mm. it's important to note that the majority of the anti-violence movement still sees criminalization as not just one policy among many, but appropriately the primary policy that we use to intervene in cases of intimate partner violence. The money for criminalization is still there. Now, the most recent iteration of VAWA does other important things. Um, It, again, money for transitional housing. Um, There are other kinds of programs that it promotes. But the basic structure of VAWA and its focus on criminalization is still intact. Let's talk about the efficacy of utilizing law enforcement as the dominant response to intimate partner violence. How has that actually played out on the ground in terms of interrupting the violence we see uh, against women um, and in households? The argument that I make in decriminalizing domestic violence is that criminalization neither deters nor decreases the incidence of intimate partner violence. And here's what's behind that. So since 1994, you'll see, for example, President Biden say, since the passage of VAWA, domestic violence in the United States has decreased 67%. That's true, but it's misleading. 
all violent crime in the United States has decreased significantly since the passage mm. of VAWA. And it's actually dropped at about the same amount, with sometimes the, the overall violent crime rate dropping more than the rate of intimate partner violence. What that tells me is that despite the fact that we've put a billion dollars into dealing with this particular crime, the drop that we've seen has been no greater than, and in some cases less than, the drop in the overall crime rate. So that suggests to me that criminalization is not decreasing intimate partner violence. The argument about deterrence is a little more complicated, but ends up in the same place. So the idea of deterrence is that if you have a law in place, people will be less likely to violate that law. We've established a strong norm against intimate partner violence by saying it's against the law, and that's going to be sufficient to keep people from doing it. The problem is that the research on deterrence generally for all crimes and the research on deterrence in the context of intimate partner violence don't say anything that says it's stopping intimate partner violence. For somebody to be deterred, they have to know what the penalty is. They have to really think through whether they're willing to take the risk of violating the law. And then the penalty itself has to be swift and certain. Most people who commit intimate partner violence are not going through that thought process about, I know that there's a law that says I shouldn't do this, <laughs> but I really think that in this instance, it might be worth taking it on. And although I don't believe in more punishment, I don't think anyone could say that the way that we meet out criminal punishment in this country is either swift or certain. And so deterrence generally is not working. And there's no research that shows that having criminal laws against it uh, decreases intimate partner violence. There's no research that shows that arrest decreases intimate partner violence. And that's been a whole kind of controversy in the field because years and years ago, after the first mandatory arrest statutes were adopted, scholars who looked at them said, in fact, arrest decreases intimate partner violence. And this is back in 1984. At the time, those same researchers said, we need to replicate this study to make sure that the results we're seeing here are right. What most people also don't know about that study was that it measured the impact of arrest versus doing nothing at all or telling the person to take a walk around the block, Kat, what you referred to. So people talk about that walk around the block thing as though it's urban legend. It's not. Um, <laughs> telling police to, to take someone around the block was actually in the police training manuals of the time. But studying arrest versus doing nothing or telling the guy to take a walk around the block, yeah, probably arrest was going to stop more violence than either of those things. Replication studies failed to find that arrest decreases intimate partner violence, and they were kind of all over the place. In some places, violence rates got higher. In some places, there was no impact at all. And in some places, there was a, a small, modest effect. There's no studies to show that prosecution decreases intimate partner violence. There's no research that shows that in incarceration by itself decreases intimate partner violence. There's some reason to believe that if you incarcerate someone and then upon their release really closely monitor them, then you might decrease intimate partner violence. And so what that suggests is if you sit on top of somebody, they're unlikely to violate the law. The other problem with that research is that it looks at things that are illegal, uh, physical violence. But there's so much more to intimate partner violence than just physical violence. And I've, as I said, represented probably a thousand clients over the last 25 years. And routinely they tell me that the emotional abuse and the psychological abuse that they face is so much worse than the physical violence that they've endured. 
Oftentimes, when people can't use physical violence anymore because their actions are being more closely monitored, they simply shift their techniques and start using emotional or psychological violence instead. And those kinds of violence are not going to show up in recidivism figures because they're not illegal. So for all of those reasons, there's not good support for the idea that criminalization decreases or deters intimate partner violence. What there is support for, though, is the idea that criminalization actually makes some of the correlates of intimate partner violence worse. That's exactly where I was going to go next. You all are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We're talking to author and scholar Lee Goodmark about uh, decriminalizing domestic violence. She's got a book on the issue called Decriminalizing Domestic Violence, A Balanced Policy Approach to Intimate Partner Violence, a new book on the way on uh, a couple of months, imperfect victims, criminalized survivors, and the promise of abolition feminism. Right. So it's it's one of the arguments of the of abolitionists like me and and folks that are are champions of decarceration or diversion programs is that actually putting people inside of the criminal legal system actually makes them more violent. Right. These are some of the most violent institutions in the world. They witness the violence. They're f- further traumatized. Um, and you talk a bit about that in the book, if you could say more. Absolutely. One of the things that highly correlates with the perpetration of intimate partner violence is the experience of trauma. So, for example, people who have adverse childhood experiences, um, things like witnessing community violence, witnessing intimate partner violence in the home, parents who have mental health challenges or who are abusing substances, all of those things make people more likely to perpetrate intimate partner violence. So you have people who've experienced trauma already, and then you take them and you put them in a system that is a trauma-inducing system where they are likely to be witnesses to or victims of violence themselves. You give them no tools, no help to deal with the trauma either that they brought with them into the prison or with the trauma that they're experiencing in the prison. And then you send them back out most often because most people don't serve life sentences uh, for the garden variety. And that's, I have air quotes around that, intimate partner violence. Um, You send them back into communities and into relationships having done nothing to deal with that trauma. And so not surprisingly, that trauma then replicates. Post-traumatic stress disorder, highly correlated with the perpetration of intimate partner violence. And even if somebody isn't incarcerated, just the experience of going through that system is traumatic. The other piece of it has to do with economics. Um, Male under and unemployment, and the research I should apologize a a little bit for, is pretty highly binaried and pretty highly binaried male-female. And so oftentimes I'm referring to men as perpetrators and women as victims because that's the way the research goes and because that's what the latest federal statistics tell us is still the vast majority of these kinds of cases, which is not to say that violence doesn't happen in same-sex relationships or to trans and non-binary people and that we shouldn't care about those things. That being said... Male under an unemployment, highly correlated with the perpetration of intimate partner violence. Economic stress, highly perpetrated, highly correlated with the perpetration of intimate partner violence. Um, Low-income people, much more likely to experience intimate partner violence. What happens to you when you go into the criminal legal system? You lose your job. You lose your earning capacity. It's significantly more difficult for you to find work if you are incarcerated and come out of incarceration. But even for people who just have to make several court appearances, who may not ever be incarcerated, job loss is more likely. And so you're doing all of these things in the criminal legal system that are leading to people losing income. And then 
expecting that they're going to be less likely to perpetrate violence when, in fact, all the evidence shows us that it makes them more likely. Right, Lee. I think the other thing that I'd like you to talk about now is, right, if, if we're engaging law enforcement, the violence has already happened. Right. The, the, someone has already been battered. Someone's already been raped. Like it's it's post it's after the fact, um, as opposed to addressing root causes, perhaps, and trying to interrupt the violence from happening in the first place. That's exactly right. So criminalization is an after the fact solution. Those are the exact words I would use. And so at that point, we haven't talked at all about why is it that this person is being violent? For years, the anti-violence movement has assumed it knew why people were being violent. There's a feminist narrative that I have used, uh, you know, I used early in my career to explain intimate partner violence. And it goes I like this. it all the time in my mom's house. Yes. Absolutely. Was, intimate yep. partner violence is about one person's desire to have power and control over that other person, sometimes with the addendum in the service of the patriarchy. Now, I don't dispute that power and control are the outcome of intimate partner violence, but there are too many other correlates with the perpetration of intimate partner violence to think that this is just about one person's desire to have power and control. And when we fail to look at those other correlates, we're ignoring what the root causes of that violence might be. When we don't acknowledge that people who are using violence have often suffered trauma, we're ignoring an entry point where we could help to try to make some change around their use of violence. When we ignore the fact that economic stress leads to the perpetration of intimate partner violence, we're ignoring a potential solution. And this this idea that simply punishing someone is going to solve this problem has been completely shown to be untrue over the last 40 years. If criminalization was going to solve this problem, we would not have upwards of 600,000 incidents of intimate partner violence each year. We have been doing this for 40 years. We have been throwing good money after bad for all of that time. And we haven't stopped to say, why are people being violent? We've uncritically accepted this narrative. And look, I count myself in the group of people who did that for a long time. Um, so I don't let myself off this hook either. But we have uncritically accepted that narrative for such a long time. And it has not served us well in terms of actually getting at the root causes and trying to do the kind of preventative work that might actually make change. Yeah, and I'll just say really quickly, that's across the board, right, with so-called crime in this country. Uh, we incarcerate more people than any other country on the planet and more than several combined, yet we still have a so-called uh, crime problem uh, in America. Um, Lee, I, I think that a, a case that you make in the book that I also really appreciate is, is how we're looking at the issue of inti intimate partner violence. And you talk about it as a multifaceted uh, issue and thus that response must be multifaceted. And you detail um, that throughout the book and, and particularly in the last chapter on balancing policy approaches. You brought up um, economics. Um, I, so we talked a bit about that in, in terms of why IPV is an economic issue. Um, can you talk about some of the potential shifts in policy and practice that could be put into place to address it from an economic standpoint? One of the most important things that I think that we could do is to put money directly into the hands of people who are experiencing violence. One of the reasons that people are unable to extricate themselves from violent relationships when they want to do that is because of economics. People rely on their partners for housing, for transportation, for their basic subsistence. Housing is the single greatest need identified by survivors of intimate partner violence every single year when the National Network to End Domestic Violence does its 
uh, snapshot of domestic violence services in the United States. And so giving people economic power, I think, is essential, not mediated through organizations and not with all kinds of strings attached, but the kind of work that organizations like Free From are doing, where they're just putting money into people's hands and saying, do with this whatever you need to do to help yourself feel safe. That, I think, is absolutely essential. But it's also bigger than that because this really isn't an individual problem. It's also a structural problem. The globalization and the loss of manufacturing jobs and the loss of jobs for blue-collar workers in this country absolutely correlates with the economic stress that people are feeling. There was a study out of the Obama White House in 2012, I believe, that said that if you increase the minimum wage um, to less than actually it is now, by 2015, you would decrease all crime in this country by three to five percent. That would certainly include intimate partner violence. So thinking across kind of our domestic economic sphere to increasing the minimum wage, making sure that families have a living wage, making sure that people have what they need is going to help us deal with intimate partner violence, but also thinking about the gender and wage pay gap um, and things that keep people from being able to amass economic power, I think is another really important part of economic policy. Helping people get out from under debt because debt is a major stressor for people who are experiencing intimate partner violence and people with more debt experience more intimate partner violence. So all of the kinds of anti-poverty proposals that we've seen made over the last 20 years, all of those things are going to have a positive impact in terms of the rate of intimate partner violence in this country. And, and he, that's something you talk about is, you know, the the work to end intimate partner violence is, is sort of set inside of the anti-violence movement, but the necessity of building an anti-poverty movement um, as, a, as a tool. And an anti-racism movement and mm-hmm. and a, a pro-services for people who need mental health movement. Um, we have been siloed in the anti-violence movement, and we've done things that have been at odds with other movements, particularly the anti-racism movement. And I think part of the work that needs to be done in the mainstream anti-violence movement is to re-understand itself as part of these larger struggles, make amends for some of the bad things that we've done. And, and we've seen some of the anti-violence movements start to do that uh, by recognizing, for example, the role that the anti-violence movement played in the mass incarceration of men of color specifically um, in, a, in, in a document called the Moment of Truth Letter that came out a couple of years ago. We have to come out of this idea that we are a single issue movement and be part of these other struggles. They are all our struggle. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with author and scholar Professor uh, Lee Goodmark about decriminalizing domestic violence. She has a book called Decriminalizing Domestic Violence, A Balanced Policy Approach to Intimate Partner Violence, um, an upcoming book, Imperfect Victims, Criminalized Survivors, and the Promise of Abolition uh, Feminism. Um, Lee, you also talk about intimate partner violence as a public health issue. Say more. When we think about intimate partner violence, we often think about it in terms of physical injury. So somebody is sent to the hospital, somebody needs to go to the doctor, and that's not what I'm talking about. 
Although intimate partner violence is responsible for significant numbers of hospitalizations each year and for a lot of lost income based on lost work and other healthcare costs in the economy, when we're talking about public health, we're talking about prevention. And there are so many different dimensions upon which we could be working to prevent intimate partner violence. So first, I mentioned that adverse childhood experiences are highly correlated with the perpetration of intimate partner violence. How do we intervene at early ages to keep kids from having those kinds of experiences? There are nurse partnership programs, and there are programs that work with at-risk families to try to get at some of the conditions that will lead ultimately to intimate partner violence. We need to better fund those kinds of services. We need to think about working with adolescents before they're involved in relationships to understand what a healthy relationship looks like and what unhealthy relationships look like and what are the the things that they should be noticing about their interactions with their peers. There's all kinds of great research around programs like Safe Dates and the fourth R um, that talk about implementing these kinds of programs in a school setting. We need to be engaging kids where they are. So the Family Violence Prevention Fund, um, which is now Futures Without Violence, I should have gotten that right, um, has done great work around a program called Coaching Boys Into Men that uses coaches to try to get to kids in a different setting and give them these same kinds of messages and develop those relationships. We need to be working with people who use violence and we need to be doing it in a way that we've done it uh, differently than we've done it in the past. The research on batterer intervention programs, which is what they're generally called, is pretty mixed. Um, In the first instance, because they're often court ordered, about half of people never even go. But even when people go, they're very much, many of them, tied to this feminist narrative that we've already talked about around power and control. And so they don't acknowledge two hard things at the same time, that on the one hand, someone could have used violence against their partner, and on the other hand, that that person may have experienced trauma that's contributing to that behavior. There is a great program um, called the Strength at Home program that came out of the Veterans Administration that really does that work with combat veterans who've been diagnosed diagnosed with PTSD and who are using violence against their partners. Models like that give us kind of a, a blueprint of where we need to go in terms of engaging the underlying causes of violence. We need to be doing more work on a societal level around education, and there are ways to do that that can be combined with entertainment. It's an idea called edutainment. So for example, on the BBC, there was a radio show called The Archers, and over a two and a half year span, The Archers did a story that started with a woman being kind of mildly controlled by her husband and ended two and a half years later with her stabbing him. And it really gave the listeners an an understanding of what the trajectory of that relationship looked like and why that victim ended up in a place where she had to defend herself from her partner. Calls to hotlines across Great Britain went up huge amounts when that story was told because people were recognizing these things in their same relationships. And then we need to think about other kinds of preventative factors like use of alcohol and use of guns. Everybody agrees that having a gun in the home makes a domestic violence homicide much more likely. We need to do a better job as a society of regulating guns for all kinds of reasons, but intimate partner violence is certainly one of them. 
alcohol is a, a little more controversial. Many people are uncomfortable with the idea that people blame substance abuse for their use of violence. But the research shows us that when someone has been drinking, they're more likely to cause injury to their partner. That injury is more likely to be severe. We need to help people decrease their use of alcohol and other substances. And there are ways to do that that are not just about the individual, but about policies that we can pass to decrease the number of liquor selling establishments within a certain amount of area, for example. And so, so often we think about this problem as an individual problem. Public health helps us to think about it as a policy problem and a more community and society problem. And I, I just want to note that, like, it, it, dealing with substance abuse, again, right, we, we respond after the fact as opposed to looking at the root causes, right, that people are using substances to numb pain and trauma and access to mental health supports um, for, for folks is, is uh, should be the dominant pathway uh, to addressing this issue. I, I want to talk about the role of community, but your story about the archers um, is causing me to shift direction just a little bit because I do want to talk about uh, the ways in which criminalization impacts women and specifically women of color. Uh, when my mother was, you know, doing this work this 30 years ago, I was, I was a kid and there's a story about a woman, I believe her name was Carrie Eric Carrie and her husband had at, like had the house booby trapped, right? Had locked her inside, made her prisoner, um, the many bombs would go off, you know, they were tied to, it was connected to the windows if she opened them. Um, and, and this, this went on for years, right. Uh, along with severe battering and ultimately she killed him. She shot him while he was in the shower and went to prison. And so there was a big, huge campaign, um, for her, but that, that is a very common story. And women too are being funneled into the criminal legal system because the criminal legal system did not protect them because the criminal legal system does not work. So you can talk a little bit about the impact of women, uh, that happens as a result of this paradigm. Absolutely. Um, start from mandatory arrest. The passage of mandatory arrest laws in the United States was meant to require police to intervene in cases of intimate partner violence. And Kat, it's what you described at the beginning of the show, that in the late 70s into the kind of 60s and 70s, police were relatively non-interventionist. And so the anti-violence movement very much wanted that to end, wanted police to intervene, pass these mandatory arrest laws. And not surprisingly, following the inception of mandatory arrest laws across the United States, arrest rates went up significantly. But interestingly, they went up for one group more than anyone else, and that was women. Not because women had all of the sudden become more violent, the research shows, but because of the way that police were implementing those laws. So police would come to a scene of an incident of intimate partner violence, and maybe they would see a fairly calm guy, but with scratches on him, and a woman maybe with no visible injuries, um, and have a conversation with the two. And the woman would say, absolutely, I scratched him. I was trying to get him off of me. And the man would say, she came at me. I did nothing. And so the police would make a determination, who should we arrest? This cat goes back to something you said earlier, too. So in the early days, a lot of times what the police would do would, would be to just arrest both parties. She said this, he said that, we'll let the judge sort it out. That's called a dual arrest. And rates of arrests of women went up both singly and dually kind of across the board. What some states did in response to the increase of dual arrests involving women was to pass primary aggressor laws. And those primary aggressor laws require police to try to figure out 
who was primarily responsible for the problem. But again, you see the problem here with defensive injuries. If one person is showing injuries and the other isn't, then that person is the one who's much more likely to be arrested. And not surprisingly, just like the rest of the criminal legal system, that burden is disproportionately following, follow, I'm sorry, that burden is disproportionately falling on people of color and particularly black women. So arrest rates for black women went way up. In some states like Connecticut, they are still way up. Um, And you saw increasing numbers of women brought into the system in that way. That's not even talking about people who use fatal uh, force to protect themselves, which is kind of the stereotypical example and the one that Kat, you just gave. But there are of course, many, many women coming into the system because they have acted in their own defense. And even though the system failed them over and over and over again, those women still find themselves criminalized. There are also a number of women who are criminalized because their partners required them to do things under duress that constituted crimes, and they did so um, because they believed that their lives or the lives of their children or their loved ones would be in danger if they failed to do it. There are people who have been criminalized because they were with their abusive partners when their abusive partners were engaging in crimes and been caught up in what's called felony murder laws. So if you are present at the commission of a felony and you participate in any way in the commission of that felony, whether in some cases you intended to or not, and a murder happens as a result of the commission of that felony, you are responsible for that murder just as if you were the person who pulled the trigger or held the knife. And I have a number of clients who are incarcerated for felony murder. So there are a number of different ways that women are coming into the criminal legal system as a result of their own victimization. That's what my new book, Imperfect Victims, is all about. Listening to Law and Disorder, I am your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Professor Lee Goodmark about the road to decriminalizing domestic violence. Um, community, you point out in the book, uh, and, and it is something well documented by abolitionists working on alternative models to community crisis, that the first responders to community crisis, right, all kinds, natural disasters, uh, street violence, uh, and certainly intimate partner violence are not necessarily cops. It's friends, families, uh, neighbors. Talk about the importance of engaging community in both prevention and accountability efforts. I think community is the absolute key to doing this work properly because, as you said, Kat, the people that we turn to first are our friends, our family, our clergy, other resources in the community. Most people are not calling the police first, and if they're doing so, they're doing it pretty grudgingly. A survey that came out from the National Domestic Violence Hotline in 2015 supports this point that most people don't want to call police. They'd rather have some other option. And the reason that they're calling police is because we're not offering them anything else. And when they do call police, they have all kinds of fears about what might happen to themselves or their partners, whether they'll be arrested, whether there'll be uh, a call made to Child Protective Services, whether they'll be Uh, turned into immigration and customs enforcement, or whether police will just be awful to them. And we should footnote here that police are responsible for a significant amount of intimate partner and sexual violence. And so the idea that this should be our first response, these people who we know are committing huge amounts of intimate partner violence and sexual assault is problematic as well. So how do we then build community resources There are a couple of things that I think we need to be thinking about. You know, one is we have to acknowledge that we 
oftentimes live in communities that are facilitating intimate partner violence because they don't understand it, because there are cultural norms or religious norms that come along with that. We've got to do the kind of granular neighborhood by neighborhood, group by group education that helps people to see why this kind of behavior is so problematic and what we can do to stop it. There's, so there's really interesting work about the use of, of community campaigns to change people's understandings of the acceptability of that violence. We also have to equip people with tools to intervene when family and friends come to them in need of help because, you know, essentially what we've done is we're turning to people who have no resources to use when they're, we're asking for help. Organizations like Creative Interventions in the Bay Area really have pioneered this idea of community accountability. How do we help someone with whatever it is that they need and how do we equip community members to do that? And so Creative Interventions has a 600-page toolkit that you can download for free online that talks about all of the different strategies that neighborhoods and communities can use to do this work. One of the interesting things about the pandemic was that we saw more kind of neighborhood neighbor accountability, more people working together to try to meet each other's needs, more mutual aid. And so mutual aid is another strategy that people are using. Um, I particularly like talking about pod mapping, which came out of the anti-violence movement and came out of the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective. Pod mapping is the idea that you have a group of people around you. And those people play certain roles in your life. You need to be thoughtful and intentional about figuring out which friends you can turn to for what things. So for example, I might have a friend who always has a couch for me, no questions asked. I can absolutely stay with that person all the time. And I've got a friend who, if I need 50 bucks, they've got it. They're going to pull out their wallet. They're going to give it to me, no questions asked again, right? The person who has the couch they never have cash. And the person who's got the $50, they're already overcrowded. I can't stay with them. But I know that these people in my pod play these roles. And when I have these needs, I can turn to them. And in turn, there are things that I can do for them. And they're aware of those things. Creating these kinds of tight-knit networks helps us to have immediate, impactful interventions when we need them. Then there's the kind of the whole question of transformative and restorative justice. So restorative justice, I think, got a bit overhyped in the midst <laughs> of the Me Too movement. And it seemed like all of the sudden people were making the case that, well, we don't have to use the criminal legal system anymore. We can just do restorative justice and that's going to fix everything. And that's not the way that's going to work. You can't just pick up what is essentially a criminal processing system that processes hundreds of thousands of people each year pick it up and put it to the side and plunk down in its place a system that is time intensive and resource intensive and, and really effort intensive. Uh, it requires a lot to do restorative justice. And in cases of intimate partner violence, we should only be doing restorative justice where the victim wants to do it and where the person who has done harm is willing to accept accountability. And so that's not going to be every case. We need to be thoughtful about when we use restorative justice, but it's certainly one of this suite of things that we can be doing, all of which come under the umbrella of transformative justice. The idea that we can hold people accountability, I'm sorry, let me say that again. The idea that we can hold people accountable and we can address the harm that they do 
without involving the carceral state. We have defined accountability as punishment in this country. And we have told people that justice means punishment. And so it's not surprising that for most people, when they think about what justice might mean in a context of intimate partner violence, it means having this person locked up. But when you talk to survivors of violence, that's often not at all what they want for all kinds of different reasons. And so it's on it's imperative that we develop systems of holding people meaningfully accountable. Because incarceration is a form of passive accountability. You don't actually have to reckon with the person that you've hurt, and you really don't have to do anything to make amends in any way. But to create meaningful accountability in all of these different ways so that we're not reliant on a a trauma-inducing system to do that work for us, work that it doesn't do and that it won't do, and that by saying that it will, we continue to give victims a false sense of hope about what its potential actually is. Right. I mean, and, and my pathway to, to, to abolition really was through the realization that someone sitting in a cage did nothing for my healing, the healing of anyone else who was impacted uh, by the behavior, and certainly nothing to heal or make our communities uh, safer. Uh, we work really closely. My other life with uh, the Anti-Police Terror Project. We work really closely with Mimi, and we also are in the business of developing alternative responses to community crisis. So a couple of years ago, we launched Mental Health First, which is a non-carceral response to mental health crisis. And we, this month, are releasing our toolkit uh, to respond to intimate partner violence uh, without law enforcement, um, using a lot of uh, creative interventions and the wisdom of of those folks. when we were making the case that law enforcement shouldn't be the primary response to mental health crisis, folks got it, right? Like there was the data, we showed them, they were like, okay, yeah, you shouldn't criminalize uh, mental health. It's been a whole other conversation. We're talking about <laughs> intimate partner violence. I mean, even folks that like out of one side of their mouth, they're like, yeah, I'm an abolitionist. Wait, what? Batters aren't going to prison. Um So it's been an interesting road, and I I wonder if you would talk a bit about that. Like, um, the difficulty of having some of these conversations, especially in even, you know, in the field in particular, right, with other uh, folks that are working on this issue. Um, I do think I'm seeing shifts in the field. Like, people are asking me to talk more about it. Um, But but still, um, to get away from that idea, right, that folks that cause harm have to pay for it. Um, it, it's it's this is a rougher wor- road to walk, yes. It's a it's a much rougher road to walk. Um, and when I think back to the start of my career, twenty five years ago, if you had asked me kind of whether I thought abolition was an appropriate response to intimate partner violence, I would have told you no. I would have told you you were crazy. That the only way to deal with this problem was to lock all of these guys, and at the time we were only talking about guys, uh, to lock them all up because they were monsters and there was nothing that we could do for them. Um, My Twitter handle is actually recovering carceral feminist. Ask me how. (laughs) Because I absolutely identified as a carceral, well, we didn't identify people as carceral feminists then, but you know what I mean. And what changed for me was talking to clients and having clients say, putting him in prison doesn't do anything to help me. It doesn't make my life any better. It doesn't put food on my table. This is somebody I love. This is somebody who is a co-parent with me. I need them to be 
in my life and I just need them to not be violent. And prison is not what's going to make them less violent. And so I have been kind of on this 25-year journey, um, and I have to cop to something else, too, that at the end of decriminalizing domestic violence, I say decriminalizing domestic violence is unlikely, which I think is still the case, and probably unwise. And I heard, you know, it was interesting. I finished that book in 2016. And when I finished the book, people were absolutely appalled at the title. Um, Survivors were really upset by it. I had to talk with people a lot about what it meant. And people just could not get their heads around this idea at all that we would ever do anything but criminalize intimate partner violence because we've been, it's been so ingrained in us that that's the only appropriate response. By 2020, with the murder of George Floyd and the murder of Breonna Taylor and the Black Lives Matter movement, the, the anti-violence movement has shifted some. Not completely, but it has definitely begun to recognize the harm that, the, that criminalization does and particularly the harm that it does to communities of color. But that being said, most people, when you do criminal system reform work, exclude intimate partner violence from those reforms. So if you look at bail reform in various parts of the country, in New York's bail reform, for example, they excluded intimate partner violence. And there was a huge fight about that. If you look at reforms of other kinds, you almost always see that it applies to nonviolent people, but not to violent people, right? And and I should say that differently because it's violent crimes, not nonviolent crimes. Well, many of my clients have been convicted of violent crimes. They are not violent people who need to be excluded from these kinds of reforms. And people are aghast at the idea that there might be any other way to do this. I really think that it's a function of fear. People fought, people like your mom and people like me fought really hard for mandatory arrest laws. We fought really hard to get police to take on these cases. We thought it would work. And there are a lot of people who still believe in that, even faced with the evidence that it doesn't. And they're afraid to try anything else. They're afraid to go back to what they call the bad old days when police didn't intervene and prosecutors didn't prosecute. And so they're holding on to something that doesn't work because I can't offer them assurances that any of the things that I want to replace that with will work. I think as you know, one of one of my commitments as an abolitionist is, is to talk in realities, right? Like, yes, I want a day where there are no police and prisons. I also know that there are some folks I, I I don't know what to do with. And I think that part of part of what makes this conversation hard is because women do die, right? Like that this 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 is a thing. And and so I I, I never want to have this conversation without also holding at the same time that there are women right now that are experiencing horrific forms of violence that that many of us can't ever imagine. And I think it's hard for folks to figure out, well, okay, well, you know, we always go to the worst case scenario, right? Um, And I can say the worst form of abuse, and you mentioned this earlier, that I ever endured was the emotional and mental abuse of my narcissist husband. Like that... (laughs) That was what almost destroyed me. Um, right, which was not illegal. So I, 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 I think, I, I think that that's a part of it. But I think that we are making progress, um, and we're doing that in part to, because of folks like you. I want to thank you so much for your work and for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. I'm always happy to talk with somebody who's been on that journey. I'm so sorry that you had to experience that, and I'm so in awe of the work that you're doing as a result. Thank you.
You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We have been joined today by Lee Goodmark. Professor Goodmark is a professor at the University of Maryland Francis King Carey Law School, where she co-directs the clinical law program and directs the gender violence clinic, which she founded. Goodmark also teaches family law, social justice, and the law and gender-related courses. She's the author of Imperfect Victims, Criminalized Survivors, and the Promise of Abolition Feminism. We're going to have her back on to talk about that. It comes out in 2023. Decriminalizing Domestic Violence, A Balanced Policy Approach to Intimate Partner Violence, and A Troubled Marriage, Domestic Violence, and the Legal System. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask and the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. 